The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A warm welcome to Squawk Box. We've got Hadley Gamble in Moscow, Russia. We've got Jeff, of course, in the London studio. And myself, Steve Sedgwick, here in Poland. These are your headlines. Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, comes under heavy rocket fire as the first ceasefire talks fail, whilst Russia's President Vladimir Putin reportedly grows increasingly frustrated as troops make slow progress. In an exclusive interview, Ukraine's foreign minister tells me that every Russian ruble is stained with Ukrainian blood. Cut off your business with Russia. If you have moral ground, do it immediately without any delay. Global leaders double down on diplomacy. French President Emmanuel Macron welcomes EU chiefs to Paris and holds calls with his Ukrainian and Russian counterparts demanding an immediate halt to hostilities, while UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson heads to Poland and Estonia today. Energy majors Shell and Equinor exit Russian joint ventures, Daimler Trucks and Volvo suspend activity, and MasterCard excludes multiple institutions from its payment network as the corporate world shuns Moscow. So very good morning, everybody. As we start the program this Tuesday morning, let's bring you up to date with the latest developments overnight. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has now entered its sixth day after talks of a potential ceasefire between the two sides failed to yield a significant breakthrough. Fighting has intensified around the port city of Mariupol and the eastern city of Kharkiv, where Ukrainian officials say dozens of civilians were killed. Meanwhile, Russian forces are expected to make another push for the capital, Kiev, According to the U.S. satellite company Maxar, a convoy of Russian tanks and military vehicles stretching for more than 60 kilometers has been seen outside the city. In a televised message, Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky has accused Russia of war crimes and says there will be no progress in talks while the fighting continues. The synchronization of shelling with the negotiation process. I believe that by this simple way, Russia's trying to put pressure on us. Don't waste your time. We don't accept this tactic. Fair negotiations can take place when one side doesn't hit another one with rocket missiles during the negotiations. Volodymyr Zelensky. Well, U.S. intelligence officials have told NBC News that Russian President Vladimir Putin is growing increasingly frustrated as his military struggles to push into major Ukrainian cities fail. Officials say Putin is reportedly struggling to keep emotions in check and growing increasingly concerned with Russia's isolation on the global stage. 
The Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kaliba has told CNBC in an exclusive interview that Ukraine will not surrender, calling on the international community to stop doing business with Russia, equating it with an aggression on his country. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken offered unwavering support for Ukraine in a call with Kaliba. Will Hadley conducted that exclusive interview with the Ukrainian foreign minister. Hadley, tell us more about what he had to tell the world. Good morning, Jeff. That's absolutely right. The day uh, for Ukrainians is a crucial one. Essentially, what I heard from the foreign minister was a lot of uh, determination, but at the same time, um, a very, very accurate and probably logical at this point assessment of what's happening there on the ground. This is a man that's been in and out of bomb shelters for days now, six days uh, of attacks on his country. He said to me that when it comes to Vladimir Putin's mind melt, he must be, quote, mad. He believes that Vladimir Putin wants to burn Kiev to the ground. He won't be happy until it's in ashes. I asked him specifically what he needs from the West. He said more weapons, more financial assistance, of course. We're always looking for more help from our friends. But at this point, it continues to be up to Ukraine to find a way to win. Listen in. Every 24 hours are crucial because Russia deploys more and more military might on Ukraine hundreds of tanks moving into the country. Uh, they, they dominated the skies with their uh, bombers. Uh, rockets, uh, missiles are being thrown on our peaceful cities, civilians being killed, but we continue fighting. This be turned into a real, a real people's war against Russian aggression. It's not the state of Ukraine that opposes the aggression, it's the people of Ukraine who do so. The war continues and the number of war crimes committed by uh, Russia against civilians multiplies to, the, to, to a big regret, regret. but uh, we will continue to defend ourselves. Foreign Minister, um, the talks between Ukraine and Russia, can you give us an update, sir, on where they are? Well, uh, the Russian delegation did not indicate good faith in finding a solution to the current crisis, to this war. They repeated their classic demands to Ukraine about uh, full demilitarization, recognition of Crimea, and so forth and so on. We responded. I'm not uh, aware uh, whether the, the whether talks still continue or they are over. Uh, but I would like to uh, make it clear that Ukraine is ready, is ready to continue seeking diplomatic solution, but Ukraine is not ready to surrender or capitulate. Do you believe that these talks between Ukraine and Russia have a chance of succeeding? I'm a diplomat. I have to believe in the success of talks. But at the same time, I have to tell you that my main job, my main, uh, my main goal uh, as a diplomat now is to impose more sanctions on Russia, to bring more weapons to Ukraine and to isolate Russia as, uh, uh, as much as we can in the international arena. So I am entirely focused on this part of diplomacy. It's a war diplomacy. It's a new reality that we have to run to support Ukraine for by all means available. Because we stand not only for ourselves, we stand also for the world order as we all know it. Now, just to give you a sense, guys, of the desperate situation that Ukraine finds itself in six days after the start of this invasion, 
U.S. intelligence confirming in the last several hours that there is a Russian convoy uh, troop movement, if you will, that is 40 miles long looking to encircle the capital city of Kyiv. So they are certainly by no means out of the woods yet when it comes to the threat of Russian aggression, to what's happening on the ground there, the fight for these cities. And you've got to take a step back and think about whether or not that is at all changing the calculus for Vladimir Putin. We heard earlier from General David Petraeus, the former director of the CIA, and he said that this is a conflict that's going very badly for the Russian military. Jeff? Hadley, uh, while you're there in Moscow, also useful, I think, for us to focus a little on the financial sanctions. And we heard from the central bank governor in the middle of the day yesterday about the actions that the bank is taking to try and protect the Russian financial system. Um, can you give us a sense of what's happening on the ground and what life is like for the average Russian? Well, Russia waking up today to a second day of these um, unprecedented sanctions, Jeff. Capital controls going into effect today. The ruble yesterday down against the dollar as much as 30 percent. A lot of fear, frankly, about what this could mean uh, for everyday Russians, as you say. Certainly those who are involved in Western businesses, many of them, as we know, deciding to get out of Russia. You heard from the Ukrainian foreign minister earlier in the program, uh, basically saying that if you are in bed with Vladimir Putin, you are basically have blood on your hands. The Russian ruble, he said, is is awash with Ukrainian blood because everything that happens in this country uh, to the benefit of the government, to the benefit of the state coffers, is essentially funding Mr. Putin's war machine. So certainly it's weighing on folks as they wake up here in Moscow today. Adley, thank you so much. We'll see you a little bit later for an update in the program. The uh, Biden administration has expanded sanctions against Russia. The latest action from the Treasury Department now prohibits U.S. citizens from participating in any transactions with Russia's central bank its National Wealth Fund or the Russian Ministry of Finance. The U.S. has also sanctioned the Russian Direct Investment Fund and its CEO, Kirill Dmitriev, a close ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin and someone we've spoken to a lot on this program as it's been a, a, a major developer of vaccines in Russia. Well, the United States has ordered the expulsion of 12 Russian diplomats from the UN for engaging in espionage activities that are harmful to U.S. national security. The Russian ambassador to the UN, Vasily Nebenzia, was told of the decision during a phone call while participating in a press conference at the UN headquarters in New York. The diplomats were instructed to leave the US by March the 7th. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson says the UK will continue to bring maximum pressure on Russia. Johnson heads to Poland and Estonia today where he will also speak with the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg Mr Johnson is due to discuss the response to the unfolding humanitarian crisis on Ukraine's border as well as European security. Let's get out to Steve once again in Poland. And, and Steve, we obviously continue to monitor the humanitarian crisis unfolding here and you've seen the flow of refugees coming in across the border. But there are these twin-track diplomatic efforts. What do we think Boris Johnson can bring to the table by heading east? Yeah, there's a lot in there, Jeff, as well. And with the story, there are so many layers. Let me, let me just start off, actually, if I may, on perhaps the most important part of the story, which is the human cost story, which 
I've been trying to cover over the last uh, few days or so. The numbers are going up extraordinarily fast. Let me just uh, get everyone to take stock. On Saturday, when I was reporting in Krakow, uh, it was 145, 150,000 refugees across all borders going uh, west as well. Not only Poland, but Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, Moldova as well. By Sunday, the numbers have gone up to around about 368,000. Now we know the figure is circa 500,000, over 500,000. So you don't have to be a genius to work out that with the horrendous activity we're seeing and we're hearing about from correspondents and from Hadley and from our NBC correspondents, in Kharkiv and Kiev and elsewhere, those numbers are going up very, very quickly. So the humanitarian cost is growing and it's devastating. And so that's why initiatives such as Ursula von der Leyen's basically just saying you can have asylum. If you're Ukrainian, you get three years. You don't even have to fill in the papers. That's very, very important as well. And I know the UK <clears throat> has been working on that as well. That said, as you say, this is twin-tracked at least what's going on, probably tri-tracked or quad-tracked or whatever the word is as well. So the military pressure as well is also there, and I think that's really the focus of Boris Johnson's visit uh, to Tallinn and to Warsaw today as well. Let me just tell you a little bit about what he's going to do. He's going to meet with the President Duda uh, and go to the Lask Air Base. I've spent a bit of time talking about the Lask Air Base. It's quite a way east of here. It's a couple of hours east of here, juxtaposed between uh, Krakow and Warsaw, and then you just go uh, west a little bit as well. But it's a very important air base. It's one that, um, that the US uh, Air Force is putting its F-15s at as well. Now, some have come in from the United Kingdom. Some have come over from the United States. So you're talking about 16 F-15s there as well. Uh, you're also talking about F-16s have gone to Romania from Germany, F-35s to Germany. So so the American military presence on the Air Force front is absolutely enormous. Boris Johnson will be looking uh, at some of that at the Lask, Lask Air Base as well. But uh, I'll just give you a little bit about our location because the context is useful. So we're in a place called Jezuf at the moment, which is the largest city in southwest Poland as well. But uh, the airport, which is I don't know, about two miles north of where I'm actually standing here, is where the 82nd Airborne have based themselves under Major General Chris Donahue as well. So just to say that that's like the, the operating base uh, for the Americans. Uh, safe to say we weren't allowed to film up there as well, but there's everything you'd expect with the Humvees and what have you and the, and the Airborne troops up there. So then Boris Johnson is going to Warsaw, he's going to Lask Air Base, then he's going to fly onto Tallinn. And I, I'm pretty sure that Jens Stoltenberg is accompanying him on the whole visit certainly going to be uh, in the Estonian leg of the visit. And they're going to meet the Prime Minister, uh, uh, Kaya Kallas, uh, and also uh, meet what's called troops from the EFP, which is the Enha Enhanced Forward Presence Battle Group as well. So you've got Boris Johnson uh, and the NATO Secretary-General having these uh, top-level meetings and just underlying the importance of the so-called eastern flank now. And this eastern flank is something we've talked about a lot, uh, and NATO is now very, very keen to enforce that. Um, the quote from Boris Johnson in advance of this is that we have shared humanitarian barriers, but more important as well, um, that the humanitarian situation doesn't get worse, but we want to bring maximum pressure uh, onto Vladimir Putin. We want him to feel the consequences as well. So that's kind of the purpose of this visit, to endorse the fact that the eastern flank of NATO uh, is getting extra support from British, American and broader NATO support as well. But it's very interesting because when we talk about support, Jeff, we talk about things that comes right back into our, our world as well. And in any normal time, we'd be still pouring over the BP announcement uh, of 24 hours ago of pulling out of their 19.75% stake in um, uh, in Rozhnev. But now, of course, Equinor have followed suit with their projects. But I think the Shell statement is very interesting. And I'll come back to you on this, Jeff, actually, because Shell has a 27.5% stake in this enormous Sakhalin 2 LNG project. And the reason why I'm coming back to you is because your experience is very important for our viewers to know a little bit about this, because you have actually spent time in Sakhalin uh, looking at some of these projects as well. So for Shell to walk away, uh, I'm sure you'd agree, this is just absolutely enormous corporate ramifications. 
No, absolutely. I mean, it must be nearly a decade ago when I first went to uh, Sakhalin to see the initial LNG projects that were being uh, put in place there. And uh, an incredibly difficult place to work. Uh, much of the year is spent with uh, near sub-zero temperatures. So very hard going. And you could see the degree of not only manpower and financial commitment that Shell had put into that project alongside its partners. And the, uh, the, the, the times, of course, were very different. And it, it was felt that there was a, a bright future for the Far East, Russia, and cooperation with Western oil companies to share their expertise to develop these relatively virgin fields. Now, of course, you spin forward through 2014 and the action uh, President Putin took to uh, seize uh, parts of the uh, Donbass and, of course, Crimea. And then you, you contemplate the situation we're in now and why these oil companies ultimately have had to pull the trigger and take these very drastic steps. And um, one thing that's worth saying, obviously there is a huge uh, financial impact to all of these companies. I think Shell takes a $3 billion hit here. BP uh, talking about a hit in excess of $20, $25 billion. So these are enormous numbers that we're talking about. But also there'll be a long tail here because um, memories run long and it will take a very long time once we move beyond this and hopefully we move beyond this to a, a positive conclusion for the people of Ukraine. But it will take a very long time before I think a lot of the corporate world feels comfortable um, climbing back in bed with Russian businesses if they have state connections, Steve. Yeah, and I think you make a very important point here as well. There are so many tracks, and we try, you and I and Hadley and the team, to be as measured as we can in the white heat of this news as well. But one thing that seems to me very interesting, and from everything you've said and everything I've heard and everything I've seen on the ground, is that this time it is different as well. I've never seen corporates willing to take the kind of pain they are now. Now, what kind of pressure they're under to do so... I don't know, but I expected a government response of a certain level. I didn't expect the kind of level of coordination I've seen uh, from the EU, which is, is just quite extraordinary and quite heartening, actually, as well. But, but I've never seen corporates willing to not turn uh, the other eye, uh, uh, just kind of turn the shoulder and just not look at these situations now. They're, we're seeing pain across the board. MasterCard blocking uh, financial groups as well. Um, freezing assets of the likes of Friedman, Sechin, Usmanov, very, very important, very, very wealthy people. Rozhne um, stake being sold off, Equinov, Shell. Companies are taking decisions, countries are taking the decisions, uh, Switzerland, Monaco, uh, that, you, that just seem unprecedented that they had not been willing to do in previous crises as well. That's why I think this one is different. Uh, and when Boris Johnson talks about maximum pressure as well, I think the maximum pressure is not only coming militarily, at a government-to-government -government level, at a sanctions level. But what I'm seeing from corporates, that for me, and the mask news as well. I mean, you just, we just go on and on. There's so many different types of news here on this one. Uh, a lot of the delivery companies refusing to deal with Russia. A lot of the uh, internet companies uh, taking off Russian news sources and whatever as well. So I think the pressure, I've never seen anything like this uh, in my time, not only in, as a journalist, but uh, covering markets as well. No, absolutely, Steve. Um, we'll come back to you a little bit later on here, and um, we're going to talk some more about some of those corporate actions that 
that Steve was discussing because they now seem to touch almost all aspects of Russian life. Um, we even heard, I think, that uh, Russian cinemas are no longer going to get the latest Batman movie as uh, uh, the entertainment industry also steps in and gets involved. Um, sport, as we know, lots of matches are being cancelled. It's affecting tennis, it's affecting rugby, it's affecting judo, it's affecting all sorts of areas of life that normally you wouldn't anticipate politics to reach into, but such is the degree of anger and the desire to isolate Russia over its incursion into Ukraine that we are seeing these actions taken. And one suspects they will continue here as companies revisit uh, on the one hand, uh, what positions they may have, and two, the fear they may have of backlash if they are not being seen to act. Anyway, let's bring you up to speed with the financial markets. So you'll recognize this. This is a, a snapshot of where we uh, shut up business. Effectively, uh, the market's having a bit of a seesaw session here, but largely a negative tone to the trading day wherever you uh, looked in uh, the, the European session or in uh, the United States. And of course that is a reflection of what is going on with Ukraine and the fear therein. But it also tells us something, I think, over the month of February, how the markets have been behaving around a couple of other issues that are much more central to the idea of whether it is worth buying equities at these prices. And that is inflation and its impact on earnings and the interest rate rises that were already being anticipated as central banks have to react to that inflation. So as we look at the month of February, what you can see here ultimately is most of these major US indices were off by about three to three and a half percent. Let's talk about the safe haven trade. Uh, if we can pop up the treasuries and give you a look at the curve just to show you the degree to which we've seen these uh, treasury notes back away from previous levels. And we were, do you remember, we're, just a few weeks ago, I think we were just chatting about 2% and what would be the next important level here for yields on the 10-year note. Well, you can forget about that for the moment here because we've seen the yields come down across the curve as the market has bought back into treasuries. Uh, so prices up, yields down in anticipation of finding somewhere safe to hide out while this risk story, this geopolitical risk story plays out. Oil has uh, pushed on a little. Uh, if you, um, well, I say we've pushed on a little, we're actually lower on the headline prices on Brent crude than we were yesterday. But as you can see, WTI is higher We're $97.31 a barrel. And the point here is just that the bid remains firm under the oil price at the moment as the market is trying to balance the idea of tight supply and where Europe gets its energy from in the event that uh, exports of Russian energy are ultimately stopped either by the Kremlin or indeed by um, a series of sanctions from Western powers looking ultimately at an industry that it feels it can no longer take uh, energy from. Uh, year to date, 28% for Brent crude. Opening calls then, what do we have uh, lined up here for Europe? Well, the early calls that we're getting on the European markets indicate we will have a weak start to the trading session. 
But I'm a little bit, um, I don't know, uh, not sceptical. That would be the wrong word. These are the numbers. So we have to take the numbers at face value. But let's show you the US futures. And when I came in earlier this morning and took a look at the US futures, they were all broadly positive. Now, the interesting thing about where we are now is that the NASDAQ has just dipped slightly negative to flat on the implied open, but we still have a positive open implied for the Dow and for the S&P 500. And very interesting, on CNBC Pro, we've got a piece from uh, JP Morgan's Marco Kalanovic. Uh, he was interviewed. He believes the worst of the sell-off might be over. Now, very early doors to make that big call but I think that is based on the expectation that there will not be a major hit to earnings from these sanctions on Russia so the earnings argument continues to stand up in favor of equities says Kalanovich and maybe there is some support from a less steep uh, rate rising cycle from the Federal Reserve. But we can uh, talk more about that as we go through the morning and how interest rate expectations might be being adjusted and how that played into the uh, bank stocks yesterday. Uh, we will have a number of uh, market commentators for you through the course of the programme to try and give you a read on what happens next in different asset classes. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Coming up, Ukraine's foreign minister tells CNBC Every Russian ruble is stained with blood as he urges more companies to pull operations from the country. We'll bring you more from that exclusive interview. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. The corporate backlash against Moscow's invasion of Ukraine is gaining momentum, with Shell becoming the latest global energy group to withdraw from Russia. Shell says it'll stop all three of its joint ventures with Kremlin-backed Gazprom and end its involvement with the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline project. That decision comes a day after rival BP said it would sell its near 20% stake in Russian oil company Rosneft. The U.S. and its allies are reportedly weighing a coordinated release of oil reserves as Russia's invasion of Ukraine sparks supply concerns that, according to sources speaking to Reuters, the International Energy Agency is set to hold an extraordinary ministerial meeting later today to assess the impact of Russia's invasion on oil supplies. EU energy ministers have agreed to link the European electricity grid to Ukraine, moving forward a long-held plan at an emergency meeting in Brussels. The move is aimed at increasing the bloc's energy dependence on Russia, uh, which currently energy independence, 
reducing the energy dependence uh, from Russia, which currently provides around 40% of the EU's gas supply. EU Energy Commissioner uh, Kadri Simpson also said that current storage levels and LNG deliveries should help see Europe through the winter. Georg Zachman joins us, Senior Fellow at Bruegel. Nice to have you with us this morning. Thanks for coming. Uh, thanks for, for, for joining us and coming to CNBC. Georg, let me, let me ask you, um, how easy is it going to be to wean Germany and other Western European countries off Russian energy? Um, good morning, Jeff. Um, yeah, we just yesterday published a new analysis at Bruegel in which we look into the question, how can we prepare for the first winter without Russian gas? And the answer that we give is it's in principle doable and it's doable without entirely devastating our economies, without electricity blackouts in Europe and without letting people freeze. What will be the major new source of supply then for European households? There's been talk of Algeria chipping in. There have been calls on Qatar, the UAE, other countries in the Middle East to help uh, provide additional supply. But all of that just seems piecemeal given the size of the deficit we'll see. So where does the extra supply come from or is it a question of cutting demand? Um, it is it is a mix and it will be a mix of a lot of piecemeal uh, small uh, items. Um, the biggest chunk that um, that we count on is indeed increased imports of LNG. So um, just a very broad assessment would be uh, Europe currently gets 60% of its gas already without Russian gas. On top of that, we might be able to get another 20% uh, through increased imports of LNG. This will be a huge stretch because it would mean that maybe in Japan, South Korea, some more coal will be burned to free up some LNG cargoes. Additional uh, production in the U.S. will have to be directed directly to the, uh, to the European market and so on. On top of that, there might be smaller volumes from our pipeline neighbors, uh, such as you mentioned, uh, Algeria, maybe Azerbaijan or Norway. But I wouldn't hold my breath for, uh, for significant volumes from there. So we are staying with a gap of another 20% compared to last year's demand that we need to fill. And that, in our assessment, can come in a relatively orderly way through demand reductions in Europe. Georg, it's hard to call history uh, in the midst of the situation at the moment, but are we seeing a historical shift away from that stunningly traditional close relationship between Germany and Russia on a corporate, on an economic level? Or actually, will this not be that pivotal moment if indeed, and we all hope it will be, that the war were to end very quickly in Ukraine? I, am I, I'm asking you, is this a seismic shift for the medium to long term or actually just short term change that we're seeing? Everything that we see right now is historic, as uh, the German Chancellor said. Um, and unless, as you say, the, uh, the crisis is surprisingly over very, very quickly, this thing will have long-lasting implications for, uh, for German-Russian economic and energy relations. 
Can Germany afford uh, a new energy revolution? Can it for, uh, afford the recovery across the whole of Europe, which Germany is expected to finance a lot, and a remilitarization as well? Can Germany afford all of this? I know it's got an amazing balance sheet as well, but is this going to be uncomfortable <clears throat> for considering the way Germany has very responsibly ran its finances over the last couple of decades? That again will be a, will be a very significant shift and uh, and also stretch so my impression is that uh, in this situation especially if it takes on for for quite some while we will have to choose between um, guns and butter as the economists say and we probably in whole of Europe will have to choose for a bit more of guns be it in the form of uh, energy independence building up our renewables much faster and at, uh, at high cost and kind of uh, saying goodbye to uh, to cheap Russian gas, potentially even oil and coal, and at the same time financing a massive uh, buildup of, uh, of military strengths. So my impression would indeed be that uh, this is not something that we can uh, can finance just out of ordinary means. Uh, here, this is a, uh, a situation that goes way beyond the business as usual. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.